So to begin our time, I'm going to read from Psalm 27. You're welcome to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible today, there should be one in front of you. Um, While you're turning there, I'm going to introduce myself. I realized I didn't do that earlier. So my name is Ellie Steven. Um, I'm a part of the leadership team here at Transform. I serve as the kids director and office admin. So if we have not met yet, maybe we can chat after service. So Psalm 27, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. It says, Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me. God of my salvation, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Thanks, Ellie. Well, hello. My name is BJ. I'm a staff pastor here, one of the staff pastors. Don't usually find myself up here more than once a month or so. Mike is on vacation, so I pray that he is finding good rest. This morning, we are going to be um, continuing our study through Mark. Gospel of Mark, so you can open to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 6. Chapter 6, while you're opening there, um, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning um, about last week, actually. Last week, we, um, we were reading through the passage about the woman who had been struggling for 12 years um, with internal bleeding, and, um, and as Mike finished that sermon, he had so many individuals come forward and just share something they've been struggling with for a very long time. Um, individuals I didn't even know were struggling with stuff for a very long time in this room and, and kind of the effect that it's had on them and their walk with the Lord. And, um, and I realized that maybe there's an element where we need to share a bit more about what's going on in our lives um, because the, our weakness it, uh, actually reveals his power, his glory more and um, he, his hope is what gives a human who is struggling with something for their, sometimes their whole life, many years. Um, his hope is what transcends earthly hope in the midst of pain and suffering. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, something I actually struggle with, that um, if you've been here long enough to remember the days we were crammed into the little YWAM building on 4th, um, you may have heard me talk about this. I don't think I've shared since then. Um, but I struggle with Crohn's disease, which if, um, if you never heard of that, that's not like a scary, contagious thing. Like, don't worry, you can come hug me. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> if it was, you'd be in trouble because I hug everybody. So, uh, <laughs> But it's, uh, it's an autoimmune disorder, and uh, mostly, it, it, for primarily for most people, attacks the intestines. Your, your autoimmune system says, ah, this is, there's something wrong here, um, when there's nothing wrong. And it just attacks, 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 and your intestines swell up, and you can get cysts on it, and things will start bursting, and, and you could die if you don't get treatment. <laughs> uh, we found out the hard way, me and my wife, we found out the hard way that I had Crohn's, um, because I woke up one morning and couldn't, couldn't move. I was um, racked in um, severe pain, uh, to a level where it, it actually overrides all of your nervous system to where you actually go paralyzed. And so I was rigid, stuck on the couch. And um, it was an incredibly challenging, terrifying day for my wife as she had to somehow get me to a car and then get me to a hospital to figure out what was going on. And um, 
uh, praise God, I was treated, um, had 14 inches of my intestines removed that had all sorts of cysts and lesions on it I didn't even, wasn't even aware of. Um, but it's something I've had to deal with since I was 14. Um, didn't know about it when I was 14. Didn't know it until I was 20 um, when I um, had the experience with my wife. Wasn't aware that I was what I was feeling was different than what everybody else was feeling. Until those 14 inches were removed, then I realized, wow, the reason I hate summer, say, oh no, <laughs> oh yes, the reason I hate summer <laughs> is because uh, when you have Crohn's disease, oftentimes your intestines will swell up in heat um, and you get very crampy, uh, very, very crampy and there's sharp pain and um, you're, you start to get that panicked feeling of, uh, I hope there's a restroom nearby. And it's something that um, I've had to deal with since I was 14, but I didn't realize other people weren't experiencing that um, until I got racked with pain and had to have a bunch removed. And then once the section was removed, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, I feel radically different. Radically different. I didn't know this is what that could feel like to actually feel this good. <laughs> and so now anytime I get what they call a flare-up where my body starts attacking itself again, things start to swell and I start to cramp really bad, all my energy gets sapped away, I get really weak, get really tired, I start to bleed internally a bit in my intestines. And, um, and it, I never know when the next flare-up is gonna result in another hospitalization and, and more intestines removed up to and including all of my intestines eventually, most likely, for most people with Crohn's. And, um, and it's, so it's very exhausting, and, and I, uh, I get those anxieties and fears as things like summer camp are coming up, and I, I need to run for a whole week with a bunch of high schoolers and junior hires, and it's probably going to be 100 degrees. And, uh, and so there's a lot of fear and anxiety that, that kind of crops up with that. And that's something that I've dealt with for many years, and, and most people who I don't tell don't realize and I think the biggest reason why people don't realize it is, one, I have genuine joy, and I'm genuinely excited because um, the Lord has redeemed me and has given me promises that transcend this body, this life. Um, and more than that, God used it to change me. You see, before I got racked with all this pain, my dreams were very lofty for myself. I had college dreams, I had all these ambitions of great things I was going to do, a great thing, a great person I was going to be. And that wasn't what God designed me for. And it's not that there's problems with college or, or achieving things. Um, God has called many people to that, but he hadn't called me to that. And I wasn't listening to the Lord. I wasn't listening um, for where he would direct me and guide me. Um, now, I don't want to take a stance on whether God gives people like myself crones on purpose to humble me and to get me back on track because um, I don't know if that's true, um, but I don't know that it's not either. <laughs> uh, but I'll say this, he absolutely used it to radically change my life and change the direction. And because of it, I stand up here today. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Crohn's disease. And so through my weakness, God displayed his miraculous power in doing the one thing. Now there's many things. Maybe the most powerful thing that only God can do is to change a heart and breathe new life into a person. So with that in mind, as we dive into Mark 6, I want you to keep that on, on your mind. The fact that God uses these things to draw faith out, to direct, to reveal his power, to show his glory. And we'll see why. 
But today we see Jesus' second and final return to his hometown of Nazareth during his ministry, at least the last time recorded. Probably the la- most scholars would agree he never goes back to Nazareth. The last time that Jesus was in Nazareth, a crowd tried to throw him off a cliff. They didn't like what he was saying. They're like, aren't you Joseph's son? Just that, that carpenter boy, what are you doing? So they wanted to throw him off a cliff and they were unable. Jesus was much more powerful than they would have believed. He just walked through the crowd, no problem, he left. That's the last time he was there. So <laughs> I personally would not have returned, Jesus did, um, but I'm not Jesus. So he's gonna return for the second and we believe final time today. So Mark chapter six, let's start in verse one. And it reads as this. He left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Okay, so now he has disciples with him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that, he has, that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Excuse me, sir, how dare? How dare you be smart and heal people? How dare, son of Mary. Ah, the derision in that. First time he went, they said, son of Joseph. Second time, son of Mary. Are they implying that maybe Jesus uh, is not legitimate? Possibly. Is it possible that Joseph has actually died early and Joseph is no longer in the picture and so they reference Mary? That's also possible, actually. Um, And that's more generous to the people. I don't know which is right. But they're both interesting. But you see an insidious arrogance, an air of superiority that accompanies a person that believes they understand a person or a thing. There's something about us that once we understand something, we have an air of superiority over that thing, an arrogance over that thing. Once we've understood something, we feel bigger than the thing or the person. The biggest failure in their method of discernment as they look at, isn't this son of Mary, isn't he just some silly carpenter? The biggest error in the method of their discernment is that they saw not the personhood of Jesus, instead they saw the line of work and the home from which Jesus came. This is a problem in the Middle East in Jesus' day. We don't care so much about our bloodline nowadays, unless you're on Ancestry.com. Ooh, I'm 20% Irish. <laughs> you know, like, unless, but it doesn't change your status in society, probably. <laughs> Except all the Irish people are like, ah, family. But this is a big deal in the Middle East, and their method of discernment was faulty. In the wise words of the great food critic Anton Ego, 
Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. about the personhood. I, I, love, I can tell everybody who has kids or just enjoys chef movies <laughs> and rats. <laughs> but, but, but you can see the problem with their estimation of Jesus was that they had their mind already decided what Jesus was. They felt they knew what Jesus was, and based off of what he was, they had an estimation of how much power and wisdom Jesus could contain based off of who he was. A carpenter, not just that, but a son of poor and humble parents. There could also be some hurt pride happening here. We're not told this explicitly, but since the last time Jesus was there, They tried to throw him off a cliff. Now he returns, having performed many miracles far and wide, speaking with great wisdom. This is just another example of why it's so important to be able to admit that we're wrong about someone. See, there's a temptation to always want to be right about people and that our first judgment is correct, and we want to hang on to that. But the humble person, which is what we're called to, knowing that they had been redeemed, in order to be redeemed, you had to have first been a mess, should naturally grow towards being willing to admit that our estimation is not always right. Jesus showed by his power and wisdom that he was indeed from the Father. Only arrogant eyes could contradict the truth that was being played out before them. And eyes trained on the Father couldn't possibly miss it. Despite their blatant, hardened hearts, Jesus does for them what he has always done and is continuing to do, even to this very day. He offers them the truth and another opportunity to respond Every time we hear truth, it's an opportunity to respond. The day you stop hearing truth is a terrifying one where you're no longer being given that opportunity to respond. So he offers them another opportunity. More than that, though, Jesus makes himself available to the few that did have faith in Nazareth. The poor in spirit, if you will. Verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. You see, there's the opportunity to hear the truth and respond. He clearly points out the error they are making. Any willing heart can take that information, seek in their hearts to see if what is really being done is true from the Father, and then, based off that information, change their stance on this person, Jesus. Verse 5 shows us the great consequence of their unbelief. This is equally heartbreaking and beautiful to me. This, This verse is astounding to me. 
Out of the entire passage this week, verse five hit me the hardest. This one verse has kept me thinking. One verse of the whole passage and gave me a deeper appreciation for John 21, 25. Mike quoted this, I think, last week. I'm going to bring it up again. John 21, 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. That got me thinking last time that Mike said it, it was last week or two weeks ago, because I was thinking, well, it actually wouldn't take that much work to write down somebody's actions, especially since Jesus' ministry was relatively short. It was only a few years. You could record all that. You could record what, what he did. But you see, it's not that you couldn't write down everything that Jesus did in a few years. It's that you could write many books about each thing that Jesus did or said during his earthly ministry. So read verse five with me with that context and see how it hits you. I'm gonna bet it's not gonna hit any of you the way it hit me, but then I'll explain. Verse five, he was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Blew my mind. Blew my mind. If you could see me in the office, I was just looking at that. What? What? A few sick people had faith. Now, there are so many ways that I could see taking this verse that I was like, I could write 10 sermons on this one verse. And I could actually see how you could write books and books on this one single verse. For example, you could write a whole book about how even though Jesus had the power and wisdom, he still cared about the sick when the culture around him who didn't have the power or the wisdom tried to avoid the sick. You could write several books on that. You could write a whole book about how Jesus loved the few sick so much that he was willing to stay in Nazareth just to heal a very small group amidst the crowd of doubters. You could write books on that. God Almighty choosing to stay for the few. You could write a whole book about the fact that Jesus couldn't perform miracles when there was no faith. You write books about that. That's actually where I assumed this morning was going to go. That's a crazy thought. You say, what? Jesus couldn't perform miracles because of their lack of faith? That asks a great many questions, and you could write plenty of books about that. And that's just to name a few book ideas from one verse. I believe if we read this passage again and again, if we were to read it over and over, the personhood of Jesus would inspire many more good books. What God put into my heart for this verse this morning was the source of the faith in this tiny Middle Eastern town. The source of the faith in this tiny Middle Eastern town. In the absence of general faith, it's a lot more clear what it takes to drive someone to faith. There's not a whole lot of people interested in having faith in Jesus here. And so you can clearly see those who are pushed to faith through extreme circumstances. That key element is brokenness. 
That key element for building faith is brokenness. There's an element of desperation here that forces a person to slow down and have that self-realization moment that says, I'm not enough. I need a savior. When someone is desperate for a savior, they are much more likely to recognize the power of a savior. They are much more likely to see the power as wonderful grace instead of competition. And you have to ask yourself as you read this verse, without the sicknesses, would these individuals have encountered the Savior? Certainly nobody else in Nazareth was. So without these sicknesses, would these individuals have encountered the Savior or would they have joined the indignant and callous rejection of the Savior? So I've been changing my approach on speaking about Crohn's because it was that element God used to change me. The reason for this is that our weakness proclaims God's power. And it is also a witness to those who are struggling with some form of chronic illness around us. I'm not serving the Lord because I naturally have faith. I'm serving the Lord because he was kind enough to hit me with enough force to humble me. And for that, I can honestly say, thank you, Lord, for Crohn's disease. I actually mean that. I shudder to think where I would be, what kind of a husband I would be without it. Not because of the Crohn's disease is so great. This is not. <laughs> it's really not. Because Crohn's disease showed me how great God is by showing me how not great I am. This isn't some kind of toxic positivity where everything is butterflies and rainbows and everything's actually great if you just have the right perspective. Ding! The beauty and power of God working all things together for our good is found in the very fact that it is very difficult This brief story in view of the whole of the gospel is really quite beautiful and tragic. You have a few sick who are willing to seek the Lord and a whole crowd that is not. That called a specific Old Testament passage to mind because I think it's interesting that Jesus chose to travel to Nazareth and Jesus followed the will of the Father every step of the way. So I, I, I don't think I'm crazy in assuming that God led him the father led him back to Nazareth. And it reminded me of the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God would choose not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of 10 righteous men. After some bartering. Simil not really. Similarly, Jesus was willing to take the time and care to heal those few with faith. That's beautiful. 
yet, yet, he pronounced a deeper judgment on Nazareth than he did on Sodom, in my estimation. Scripture didn't say that. That's my estimation. Here's why. Sodom was destroyed for its sin. But how much deeper a devastation. Sodom was destroyed with fire came raining down. Imagine getting nuked, taken out. How much deeper a devastation to watch Jesus, the one true Messiah, the promised son given, walk out of his hometown to never return. They got to see the hope of all humanity walk into their city, and then they had to watch the hope of humanity walk back out. Well, we were given one more detail that captured my mind this week. So we'll look at verse 6. We're flying here. I, <laughs> oh, man. I'd say that I could write a whole sermon on just these two verses. Um, more books and all that good stuff could be written on verse 6 as well. Um, but basically, I unintentionally wrote a whole sermon on these two verses, even though we're covering all the way to 13. <laughs> Verse 6, and he was amazed, amazed, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. I know, it hit me different. I'll explain. <laughs> I, like, I always have to remember, as I'm studying, like, my, pers- my, like, my life is, is being filtered through a bit through the gospel. And so the way I view things is the way God has raised me. And so I'll say things, I'm just like, wow, this is crazy. And then it's like, well, you guys didn't come to the same conclusion the way it is. So I have to explain, I have to explain. Verse six, he was amazed. One of the most intimate things in any relationship you can have, be it friendship or family is the ability to know what's going on in the heart and in the mind. How well you know someone's thoughts is a good indication of how long you've known them. How well you know someone's feelings is a good indication of how much you care about them. Here we see not just any person's thoughts and emotions. We see Jesus' thoughts and emotions. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the very being that was made by and that everything was made by and through, the very Messiah himself looked for and waited for, prophesied about, every Jewish man and woman has been waiting and longing for. Imagine their surprise to find someone so great be this vulnerable, this relatable, this knowable. I don't know the heart and mind of even the mayor of my own town. Never mind anybody more important than the mayor. And when they speak on television, I don't believe them anyways. I don't think that's really what's going on. I, I, and God Almighty 
human form is knowable. Jesus' ability to be amazed blows my mind. And is also found elsewhere in the gospel as well. In fact, the same Greek word for amazed is used elsewhere in the gospel. I don't really know how to pronounce this, so I'll say thalmazo, thalmazo, sure, something like that. This word's used in one other place, amazed. Can anybody guess where that is? <laughs> That's my sister. <laughs> Matthew 8, if that was what you were thinking, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, you're correct. The centurion. Listen to this story. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And hearing this, Jesus was amazed. God Almighty, human form, was amazed. And said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Jesus was amazed. By asking if he should come to the house, Jesus shows that he was willing to go all the way to the house and heal the servant, if that's what the centurion's faith required. Jesus shouldn't have to walk to that house, but he was willing to if that's what the centurion's faith required. Yet, amazingly, the centurion who wasn't raised with the gospel, wasn't even written yet, it was being lived out in front of him, wasn't an apostle, wasn't in some severe personal desperate pain or illness in need of a miracle, and yet believed. No wonder Jesus was amazed. Jesus thalmazo at the source of the centurion's belief in the same way that he thalmazo at the source of his hometown's unbelief. He had awe, wonder, amazement. Would the sick 
in Nazareth have the faith they had without the illness. I can't say for sure, but I can say this from my personal experience. God absolutely saved me the moment that I asked him to wash away my sin. It's 100%. But I did not turn my life over to him in faith until the day that I was crushed by Crohn's disease. I do wish that I would have had the faith without it that I could be like the centurion who had amazing faith even to God Almighty. But I can now honestly say, knowing that that's what it took, that I am eternally grateful to have Crohn's disease and overwhelmed that God would accept my weak faith. When there are those that exist who didn't need to be crushed in order to have faith. Weak faith in all, Jesus was pleased to, to save me. He was pleased. And though my flesh is being destroyed, I never had to see the Savior walk away, never to return. That never happened to me, and it never will. And that concludes Jesus' time with Nazareth. He healed the few with faith, that'd be the sick, and then set out to find more. More. Jesus sent out to find more who had faith, who were broken, who were desperate. And this time he does something amazing. He does something that is the reason that I can have a smile on my face, the reason that any of us should be able to have a smile on our face is he empowers others to do exactly the same. You see, he's going to send his apostles out. It's time for the redeemed to go out and find more. We see that in verse 7. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. I love that and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. Go out, Jesus says, but do it fully trusting in the Father, no distractions, no distractions to take with you whatsoever that could point to your preparedness. They would be revealed in each town as focused, serious, and reliant on the Father. That's how they would walk into every town. Focused with a mission. Cared for. Serious about what they're doing. And totally reliant on the Father. In verse 10, he continues, he says, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This was a tradition for Jewish people when they would leave a Gentile town. 
when you would leave a Gentile town with all the filthy Gentiles, that's us, me and you, unless you did the ancestry thing, you're like, hey, I'm Jewish, cool. Leave a town, (laughs) and you would shake the dust off your feet. Why? Why would you do that? Because you didn't want to be stained by anything Gentile. That was tradition for Jews. For some reason, that's offensive to Jesus. And so he says, as a symbol here, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is holding no bars. He's not pretending at anything. This message is clear, and the symbolism is clear to the Jews. God has offered his will to everyone. And if you don't follow him, you're getting left behind. So in verse 12, they do just that. They went out and they preached that people should repent. Now read that carefully. I want to point this out because I misread this twice. So they went out and preached that people should repent. This is not saying that they were telling people to repent, although obviously that'd be part of it, but that the purpose of their teaching was to lead people to repentance. That's the grammar structure of that passage. Subtle difference in there, but it, but it matters. They didn't just walk into a town and just say, repent. This indicates more than that. It actually suggests that there was tact involved, that they would go into a town and share in a way that would lead to repentance. Preached that people should repent. And in verse 13, they drove out many demons, anointed work of sick people with oil, and healed them. They did the Jesus. And they were able to find more people with faith. The redeemed became purposeful. The family that Jesus raised up in action, that Jesus raised up in action, as the family that raised Jesus failed to believe and take action. That's the contrast. Jesus returns to his hometown. Everyone he was raised with, rejection. I'm not just talking his direct family, although you see his direct family try to prevent him recently from continuing the gospel. His whole community rejected him. And yet those he raised up went out in faith. Worship team, you can come on up. I want to close with a little story about my son, because, I mean, come on, you know I'm going to. If I'm up here, you're going to hear about Dimitri. But actually, what I hope you hear when I talk about Dimitri is my observations on what a good heavenly father is and how God views us and the reason why he called himself our heavenly father. You see, because I struggled with the growing the faith element of today's message for years, and when I got to the point where I was like, I want to do something for the Lord, I got really excited. And I was like, I tried 10 different things. Like, I got to do this. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work. I got I to do this. I don't know if that's going to work. Should I try this? That door kind of shut, and I got frustrated. I wanted to find something to be pleasing to the Lord. 
I couldn't seem to find anything. I was getting frustrated and I felt like I was spinning my wheels and not doing anything. And eventually the Lord led me to do something. And I had this realization um, coming home from work to Dimitri. And I've shared this with a couple of my closest friends, uh, but now all of you. I come home and Dimitri runs to the door, greets me with a big hi. Love saying hi. I ring a little bell for him as I get there. And the first thing he does is he gets panicky. His eyes go big. He starts looking around and he's looking for the toy that will grab my attention. So he runs over and he grabs a car because he loves the car. He's like, car. And if that doesn't instantly grab my attention, he runs over and and he finds the truck because it's all a truck or a car. Truck! And if that doesn't exactly grab my attention, he'll run over and he'll grab a ball. He'll hold up and go, ball! And the whole time he's almost shaking and he's like, he wants to grab my attention so bad. He wants, to, he wants to find the thing that will please me enough so that I will spend time with him. And the days when I don't stop and spend time with him, he probably feels like he failed. Probably feels like he didn't grab my attention somehow. He wasn't cool enough. And the reality is I probably just had some job I had to do or work thing, something. I had to use the restroom. I don't know. But he probably feels like he failed. And he doesn't know how much joy I find just in the fact that he wants to spend time with me. And I know that someday we're going to have toys and games that we actually like to do together because I'll be honest, I'm not that excited about a Hot Wheel. Now, if we get the tracks and there's loops, I'm going to enjoy that. But like, someday we're going to get there. And I, and I know, especially as like I've been playing with the ball with him recently and I'll, I'll kick it to him and he's learning the eye-hand coordination to kick it back. He's learning that necessary piece of life and how to catch a ball. I know we're going to something. I know we're going to have those times together eventually. And I'm so pleased with him right now. And I'm excited for the journey. And that's just one more reason why God called himself our Heavenly Father. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you chose to go to your hometown to be rejected to save the few. And Lord, I thank you that you're willing to crush us to save us. Lord, if I stray from humility, would you do what it takes to bring me back to you? I know I'm not alone in that prayer. I want to see my weakness, my infirmity as your greatness. I want to see life through the lights of your eternal purpose. And Lord, I want to see you as my eternal father who knows what I'm dealing with and has given it to me as an opportunity to represent you to my fellow brothers and sisters who I love. Be with us as we leave. Lord, most of all, we pray right now as we worship and we lift up your name, that your name will be heard high out of this building, that your glory would be proclaimed because you're so worthy and you're so, 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 so good. 
All glory and honor and power belong to you. Amen.